Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let me pray. Lord, um, we recognize that we need your divine assistance, the work of your spirit to to help us understand your word, help our minds see it clearly and understand it and how and help our hearts rejoice in it and be repentant. Lord, we want you to work powerfully in us to not only help give us clarity as to what it means to its original hearers and, and what it means about you, Lord, but clarity as to how it's applied to our lives and how we live differently before you. We know, Lord, that it's a struggle to pray and yet it is the highest and most difficult thing you've called us to do lord we pray that we would learn to do it well knowing that it is through prayer is through beseeching you our holy awesome gracious father that we're able to do anything in jesus name amen well i believe that our culture both inside and outside the church, minimizes God to the status of some kind of exalted man. The labels that appear in the unbelieving culture, and even sometimes I hear from believers, are things like this. We call him the man upstairs, right? The big guy. I've even heard the, you know, Jesus is my homie sort of talk. Now, I hear unbelievers and some believers saying that sort of thing, but really I'm more concerned not with what the unbelieving world has to say about God, but with what I see happening in the evangelical church and the way he's treated often by evangelical Christians, by you and by me. I think God is often treated with far too much familiarity. We far off, far too often treat him like he's some kind of permissive buddy rather than the God of the universe. He's not treated like the God who is holy and awesome and sovereign over all things, whom we should fear and revere. He's treated like our pal. And, and so I can show you how extreme that gets. I have a video I want to show you, and I never do videos in a service. This is a little um, aberration. But I have a video I want to show you because I want to show you how extreme that gets in the evangelical church. So, Jason, are we ready? 
the video. Just show about half of it. You don't have to show this whole god-awful thing. Just show a little short portion if you could. I think it makes my point. Um, I don't know how they call that rock and roll, um, nor praise music of any sort. I'm sorry for Sunseed and their unfortunate band. But the point is, that wasn't a joke. That was a Christian church uh, band performing. And uh, we can laugh. And point and say, look at how far Christians take this. But we all do over-familiarize ourselves with God often. And I'm going to point that out this morning. Um, I want to get there this morning. But I want you to understand how bad it can get. I mean, it gets so bad that I actually have a little statue that a friend of mine gave me. It's a joke called Buddy Jesus. You know, it's like the kind of the, the Roman Catholic Jesus with the whole sacred heart. And he's standing there and he's kind of doing this action and he's winking at you. You know, the buddy Jesus. And I've got it at home. That isn't the Lord of the universe. He's not the buddy Jesus. Right? So today as we continue discussing prayer, I want to deal with our understanding. Because what I want to do our understanding of the God to whom we are praying. Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about the character and devotion of his disciples in the kingdom. What does a disciple in the kingdom look like? That's what Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And first he talked about their character inwardly, and then he talked about the religious devotion. So in chapter 5, he talks about their character inwardly and says that disciples are characterized by a desire for holiness, and simultaneously, while they hunger and thirst for righteousness, they have a poverty of spirit. Because they know they are sinners. They know they're bankrupt. And that they're not holy enough. And that they can never be holy enough to please God. So they recognize their need for Christ. He then goes on in chapter 6 and says, Not only do true disciples have this sort of inward character, but true disciples have a particular kind of religious devotion Yes, they are religiously devout. They pray, they give to the poor, they fast. Those are the three things he talks about. However, they do those things in a manner that is not hypocritical, that isn't to show. They do them because they want to see God glorified. 
Everything is for the glory of God and the good of others, never for their own self-aggrandizement. That's what he goes after. Of the topics, almsgiving or giving to the poor, prayer and fasting, we're honing in on prayer. We're honing on prayer because of all the religious behaviors, listen, of all the religious activities or behaviors that God has called us to, none is higher or harder than prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, When a man is speaking to God, he is at his very acme. It is the highest activity of the human soul. And therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. It's true. It's far easier for me to come up here and preach or to set up early in the morning or tear down than it is for me to get on my knees every day, humbly beseeching the Lord. We all know we should pray more, don't we? Does anybody doubt they should pray more? If you're a believer, I mean, even unbelievers often admit they should pray more. We all desire to pray more. We all sense our failure in our lack of prayer. We sense our failure in our seemingly empty prayers. We're praying and it feels empty to us. And we all wonder how we should pray. How do we pray? How do I get better at this? And when we want to know how to pray, we often go looking for techniques. Techniques that give us better, deeper, more user-friendly, more likely to be answered prayers. So we go looking for. Well, Jesus has provided us a model for prayer. Provided us a model for prayer. Look at what he says in Matthew 6, 9. Pray then like this. You want to know how to pray? Here you go. Pray then like this. In other words, what he's saying is, after this fashion, in this same manner, use this as a model. Jesus is not saying, pray these words. Repeat them over and over again. That is not what he's saying. He's telling you to pray in a certain fashion, to follow a certain model. Now, there's nothing wrong. I don't want to say there's anything wrong with saying, you know, in the morning, getting up and going, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's nothing wrong with praying that. However, Jesus' point isn't that somehow this is a magical incantation that you say over and over again and somehow that's going to invoke God to do what you want. Jesus' point is, I want to provide you a model and we're going to go through that model point by point so you understand how to pray and what he's getting at here. 
So where does his model for prayer start? Look what he says first. Pray then like this. And he says this. Our Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus says you've got to start with an invocation. What's an invocation? To invoke God. To call on God. To address him. Start by addressing God. And how do you address him, Jesus says? Our Father in heaven. And I want to take both parts of this. Because I don't think that every time you pray, you should say our Father in heaven. We put that in shorthand now, and what do we say? Heavenly Father. I don't want you to get caught up with that phrase, but I do want you to understand what Jesus is communicating about the God to whom we're praying. He says, when you start out, address your prayers to the God who is the only God, our Father in heaven. And that sums up a lot about God. This week, we're going to talk about the second part of that phrase, our Father in heaven. We're going to talk about the in heaven part. What does Jesus mean? What is he summing up there? Next week, we're going to talk about the our Father part for our Christmas service. As we get to the significance of how it is that this God of heaven can be our Father. So what happens is, we're so used to that phrase, and the phrase Heavenly Father, We're so used to it that we just kind of read right over it, don't we? Just kind of scan right over it. We so trivialized it that it just kind of flies off the lips. Heavenly Father. And we don't stop and think about the significance of the God whom we're invoking in prayer. In heaven, in heaven is a reference To God's otherness. Otherness is a weird word for me to choose. Another word I could choose is transcendence. Probably less helpful. It is, when I talk about his otherness or his transcendence, I'm saying God is wholly other. He's transcendence. He is above, beyond, greater, more magnificent than us. When I talk about God's eminence, I'm talking about his closeness. The fact that he condescends to us. The fact that we can pray to him that he hears us, that he sent his son. When God sent Jesus, Jesus at that point, God was imminent. He was here with us in the greatest sense of that up to that point in history. In heaven refers to the fact that our father is not earthly. He's far greater than a man or a creature. He is far more than the man upstairs. Let's have a pact in this church. We'll never say the man upstairs, okay? That way I don't have to become unglued and become impatient. And you don't have to see my sin because it's there. There's ways to get it out. If we don't grasp the otherness or the transcendence or the awesome holiness and power of God to whom we pray... If we don't grasp that, we'll not benefit in prayer. We will not be productive in prayer. Our prayer will be more like a talk with a buddy than it will be a crying out in worship and petition to our Almighty Father. Our expectations of answer in prayer will likewise be hindered because my buddy can't do much for me. Look, I like my friends, but they're pretty impotent to deal with my problems. 
That's why I don't pray to my buddies. I pray to God. Further, if we treat God as too familiar as a buddy, we will inevitably turn him into a being that exists to fulfill my beck and call. He exists to serve me. We'll flip the creator-creature distinction on its head, and we will demand that the Lord become our servant. Now, the Lord does become our servant, and we'll talk about that next week, but not at our demand, because he's gracious. It's happened before. In fact, Israel lost sight of who God is. They had returned from exile to the promised land. And they wanted to rebuild the temple. They, Israel has this history where God had taken this nation into the promised land and he'd set up the temple and the kingdom and all of that. At one point they had gotten, well, multiple times they'd gotten caught up with their sin. But at one point they'd gotten so caught up with their sin that God finally got done with them and exiled them. They were in exile for 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar came in from Babylon and crushed them. They were under Nebuchadnezzar's rule and then under the rule not only of Babylon but of Medo-Persia after that. And then eventually they were let go seven years later to return to the promised land. They returned to the promised land. And while they were there, they wanted to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You can read about all this, by the way, in Ezra and Nehemiah. They wanted to do all of this. And so they started calling on God in prayer. They started asking him to work powerfully in them to do this. However, while they were doing that, They were also wondering why he wasn't answering. How can we keep asking you to come and work and you keep not answering? And God responded, because you're not interested in my word. They had exalted themselves to the status of deity and demoted God to the status of the servant for what they wanted. See, they kept up the Levitical religious practices. You know what those look like? where they go into the temple and they would have all the sacrifices. And you guys have read about that and seen some of that. I don't have time to detail this morning. But they would keep those Levitical religious practices up, giving their tithes, bringing their offerings, coming to Sabbath worship. They kept that up. But they did that more because they thought they were a technique to get what they wanted out of God than because they wanted to worship and obey their holy God. They weren't interested in listening to or obeying God's word. But they were interested in going. Listen, they were interested in going to church and participating in communion and baptism and going to small group and giving money to the church and serving occasionally. They're interested in that kind of stuff. Religious activity. But they weren't interested in it because they desired to worship their holy God. They were interested in it as the technique by which they thought he could be manipulated to do their bidding. Look at Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66. And we're going to spend pretty much the whole time here. Isaiah chapter 66. If you don't know where that is, that's in the Old Testament. He's one of the major prophets. He's after Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and all of that. Um, And he is before Jeremiah, etc. So Isaiah chapter 66. 
Look with me at verse 1. This is the condition that, that I have just described that Israel's in when this is said. Thus says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord coming to them. The Lord is speaking. And here's what he has to say. Heaven is my throne. By heavens, he means here the galaxies, the universe. Okay, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What? is the house that you would build for me. And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Look, the Lord clearly declares who He is. He sits on the universe and rests His feet on earth. Think of that picture. God is so immense and glorious, and awe-inspiring, and holy, that he says of the universe, I can sit on it. And you want to know how significant your planet is? I can rest my feet on it. And you think that somehow you can manipulate me by building a house for me? You think you can build a temple that will somehow keep in all my presence, and then I'll do your bidding? Do you not realize who I am? I've created even the stuff that you're making the temple out of. You're not even really creative. Want me to throw a word out of your vocabulary? Creativity. None of us have it. God is creative. Creativity has to do with ex nihilo. God breathed it into existence out of nothing. Do you know what we do? We take what God created and we rearrange it. So we're created, creative, but in a mediated fashion. Because everything's already given to us that we're now putting together, isn't it? You go and do painting. None of you created your paintbrush or your paints or your canvas out of thin air, did you? You just arranged. And here's what God's saying. You think you can build me a temple by bringing all your gold and all your stuff to me? That somehow you're going to manipulate me into doing what you want? You don't recognize who I am? We're so insignificant and so small and so tiny and so weak and so wholly other than him. He can rest his feet on our planet. This is the God whom we worship. To whom we sing. About whom I preach. To whom we pray. How can we ever bring him? How can we ever bring him the weak sauce that we bring? And think that somehow by bringing him that weak sauce, he's going to say, oh, you know, you've just coaxed me into doing your bidding. But, listen, God will condescend And look to men and answer their prayers. I don't want you to think it's hopeless. Because if you think about how immense God is, how holy other he is, you ought to at some point think to yourself, he's terrifying. I can't approach him. Why would he ever listen to anything I want? And yet he says he does want to hear you. He does want to look to you. Look at... um, Verse 2 there in Isaiah 66. 
All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And look at what he says in the second part. But this, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Interesting. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The Lord will look to the one who recognizes his spiritual poverty. His absolute need. Not to the one who thinks he is somehow able to manipulate God through his religious practices and devotions, through his behavior, through his morality, or anything else to get God to do what he wants. Who does he look to? He looks to the person who's humiliated before him. Who repents of his sin. God looks to and hears the prayers of those who drop on their knees before him and recognize that he is God and they are not. Whose mouths shut because of the sheer terror of his holiness. And who apart from his grace would come completely unraveled. That's the ones to whom God looks. Is that not what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 when he starts off? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, who understand their sin, who are sickened by it because they see my holiness. For they will be comforted. Don't practice your righteousness before men. So that somehow you're going to get a reward from them. Don't be a hypocrite and think that somehow by using many words, you're going to manipulate me like the Gentiles try to into doing their bidding. It's not how this works. Recognize I'm God. And you're not. Recognize that I sit on the heavens and my feet rest on your tiny, insignificant planet. And that I'm holy. And that the only reason, the only person, I'm sorry, that I look to, the only person I look to is the person who recognizes that. Look at what he says in Isaiah chapter 6. Keep your hand there and quickly flip to Isaiah 6. This is Isaiah now. This is one of the God's prophets. I mean, this guy is, is an incredible man of God and he sees a vision. And I'm going to talk about it more later in this series, but I want you to hear this. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah, by the way, was a great king in Israel. He was well-liked. There was a relative time of peace during the reign of King Uzziah. A lot of peace. So he starts off, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, if you're an Israelite, and you're ruled by a king, it's not like a president that we replace when we vote him in or vote him out because we're happy or unhappy with him. This is a king. 
You're ruled by a king and you've seen your people go through times of prosperity and times of despair. And you have a king who's taken you through a time of prosperity and he dies. Are you despairing? Yeah, because you're not sure what's coming next. You're at least worried. In that year, listen to what he says. It's interesting. He talks about the king Uzziah. The year that king Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Do you hear the contrast? You see, we see with our human eyes, the king Uzziah died. The king who sits on the throne, the year that he died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. What does he say? High and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Just the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. These are like the fiery ones. These are angels that essentially stand for holiness, purity, righteousness. These are, um, and that's the point Isaiah is getting at. These are holy angels. Stood, and and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Even a holy angel, morally pure, can't look at God straight on. Covering his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, here's Isaiah's response. This is a guy who knows God, who's called as a prophet of God to speak God's word. Think, his whole office, his job is to use his lips, his tongue to speak the truth. What could be more sanctified than Isaiah's mouth? And here's what he says. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of unclean people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Do you understand the impact that seeing the glory of God had on Isaiah? Isaiah, a man who's called to speak God's word on a regular basis. And he sees God and he says, I came undone. Woe's me. I'm unclean. And yet we nonchalantly walk around like, you know, I know I'm sending it up, but why in the heck isn't God answering my prayers? I deserve better from him. John, the disciple who laid his head on the chest of Jesus The disciple whom Jesus loved says, John sees Jesus exalted in all his glory in Revelation chapter 1. And what does John do? What's up, homie? No. Right? Hey, buddy, it's been a long time. You know what John does? He falls on his face. Falls on his face. He struck by the holiness of God and overwhelmed by it. This is a guy he hung out with. 
And he sees him in his exalted glory and is blown away. Look at what God says of our weak attempts to manipulate him, to get him to do what he wants. Isaiah 66, 3, he says this. I want you to see the religious hypocrisy here. Because these rituals that he's going to talk about at first were all good religious devotions. But they were done for the wrong reason. Look at it. 6, 3. Isaiah 66, 3. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. Slaughtering an ox would have been a good thing to do sacrificially, not just to brutally go around and slaughter oxes. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an actual ritual sacrifice that was required in the law. He who does that, he's saying of these Israelites, these Israelites who don't recognize that he's God and who aren't humble and contrite before him, of these guys who don't tremble at his word, he's saying of them, you go participate in a religious devotion, You're like one who kills a man. And it may be a reference to human sacrifice, by the way. Abhorrent. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck, leaving a defiled sort of sacrifice. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. You know anything about Jewish culture, religion, and law? And what pork is about. When God says, you bring me your offering. But with the kind of attitude you bring it with, not recognizing who I am and thinking that somehow you can manipulate me. Your offering is like bringing pig's blood into the temple. Your sacrifice is like killing a human being. It's just defiled. I don't even want any part of it. He goes on and says this. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. Frankincense was meant to, was burned in order so it could go up, so God could remember our prayers. And it was just a tool for us to recognize that God is remembering our prayers. And he says, you do that, it's like you're blessing an idol. Because of the heart with which you're doing it. Look what he says. This is why it's this bad These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, here church, when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, when I spoke, they did not Listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which in which I did not delight. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? When you come here and pray and give an offering and participate in communion and sing along. You pray during the week and read your Bible and your private devotions and you don't listen to the word and you are not humble and contrite, recognizing who God is. He says of that, it's like bringing pig's blood into the temple or killing a man. Because it's motivated by your desire to manipulate me to get what you want. 
So how do you know? How do you know? How do you know which kind of prayer that you participate in? How do you know which kind of religious devotion that you participate in? I want to give you two things, and I want to kind of get to the answer of that. One, um, I want to give you two ways that we participate in sin the same way Israel did. We disobey his commands all the time without a major sense of conviction or concern for punishment, don't we? We don't believe God as the immense, glorious, all-powerful, completely holy being he is. And so we don't really even fear violating his commands. We minimize his holiness, and thus our sin does not seem all that offensive. And the punishment doesn't seem, frankly, the punishment doesn't seem all that realistic. He won't really punish me. He owes me forgiveness. Would never say it, but we act that way all the time. Think of some of the commands that we take lightly. I just listed the ones we take lightly. The command to avoid sexual immorality. The command in Ephesians 5 not to participate in crude humor. The command to avoid drunkenness or gluttony. The command to participate in weekly corporate worship with the body of Christ. The command to tell others the gospel. The command not to gossip or lie or slander. The command to financially care for your parents in old age. Do you know that's a command? Matthew chapter 15. The command for wives to submit to their husbands. We just laugh that one right off. The command for husbands to understand their wives and give their lives to love them rightly. The command for Christian parents to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You know how many students came through my youth group when I was a youth pastor whose parents didn't read the Bible with them or didn't pray with them ever? Ever? And they were Christian parents, some leaders in the church? Ever? They expected the church to do it for them. The command to rejoice always. That's not possible, so we just write it off, right? That's what we think. The command to be thankful in all circumstances. The command not to be anxious. The command to care for orphans and widows. The command to regularly and joyfully contribute to the work of the ministry. The command to not covet what others have. I was just coveting some stuff this morning. (laughs) The command to forgive others. The command to pray without ceasing. The command to not use the Lord's name in vain. The command to have God as our chief affection. We just kind of take those lightly. And in the midst of it, we think God owes us. He should answer our prayers. Jesus and me were tight. He should be helping me out. He's not our permissive buddy. He's the holy God of the universe. He deserves our reverence and our fear. Second, we participate in hypocritical religious devotion as if somehow God can be easily manipulated by our external works. We come to church occasionally and feel like we've done our duty, sing songs, raise our hands. Especially if we raise our hands, then we're really pleasing God, right? We read our Bibles and pray 15 to 30 minutes a day. We give money to the church and without real sacrifice or a sense of joy, I know, but 
We're taking care of our duty at least. We serve in a ministry at the church so we can check that off of our list. We go to our small group every week, another example of our ongoing devotion. We even occasionally invite someone to church. I'm not saying these activities are bad. In fact, many of these activities are quite helpful and the majority of them are required in Scripture. The point is that we're doing them because we think they will earn us some credit with God. Not because of who our God is and because we think he's worthy to be praised. So how do you know? How do you know if you're the guy practicing religious devotion for all the wrong reasons? Or if you're practicing for the right reason? Let me give you the simple answer. When God's not giving you what you want. You ready? Here's how you test it. When God is not giving you what you want. What you're asking for. If your life is not going the way you think God should have your life going. Is your response. Well, you know what? I want God to do in my life, whatever he desires, even if my desires are not always the same as his. So to God be the glory or is your response. What's up with this? Why doesn't God give me what I need? I've served him and I've done what he wants. He's wrong to let this occur in my life. I don't want to serve a God like this. I'm not sure I even believe in God anymore. He either isn't really there or he doesn't notice that I deserve better than this. Well, I don't want to stay with the negative. I want to jump into the positive side of God being in heaven. You get the point. God's holiness, majesty, power, and transcendence humble us. They should humble us. But I also want to realize us to realize the fact that God is in heaven. The fact that he is the great creator of all things, infinitely perfect in power. That fact should give us great confidence in prayer. Not only should it humble us, but it should give us great confidence. And I'll get into this more next week when I get into our Father. But I want to give you five reasons, just five reasons. They're quick. Five reasons today. And I'm going to put them up on my blog when it's done So you have access to them or I'll email them if you want them. But five reasons why the fact that God is in heaven, i.e. why he, the fact that he is the transcendent, almighty God of the universe, ought to give us confidence in our prayers. Here they are. One, Matthew chapter 6, and I'm just going to read this. Verse 8, Jesus says this. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. First reason is he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. It's another way to say omniscient. He's all-knowing and he knows perfectly what we need. Doesn't that give you confidence in prayer? Before you even ask, he already knows what you need. Second, 
He is not only all-knowing and knows what we need, but he is good. He is good and will give us what is best for us. Matthew chapter 7, in verses 7 through 11, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's good. and He wants to give us what's best for us. Third, he is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. Not only is all-knowing and is he good, but he's all-powerful. And he can give us, will not you hear this, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. He can give us more than we ask or think. So he says, now, verse 20, now to him who is able, able, that ability, power, to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Do you hear that? God not only knows what you need before you ask him, but he wants to do good for you. And not only does he want to do good for you, but he's able to do far more good for you than you even ever ask or think. That gives me confidence in prayer. Fourth, he is holy and cannot fail to keep his promises. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, he who fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Here's what he's saying. God can't lie. He's holy. Not only is he good, not only is he all-knowing, not only is he all-powerful, but he is morally righteous and holy and perfect. And when he makes a promise, he will not fail to keep it. Will not. It's impossible for him to fail. Impossible for him to fail. So not only does God know what we need, because he's omniscient, And not only does God want to give us what is good, and not only is God able to give us what is good, but God promises us what is good, and because he's holy, he can't be a liar. It has to happen. The promise must be fulfilled. Fifth, he is sovereign and nothing's out of his control. Romans chapter 8. In verse 28, and really before that and following, I'm just going to read this, though. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is said in the context in which God has demonstrated to be sovereign over all things. God is in control of everything. 
Nothing is outside of his control. Nothing. Nothing is outside of his sovereign will. And therefore, he is working. Not only can he work, not only is he able, not only does he want to because he's good, not only know to because he knows all things, but he is in control of everything and cannot fail to bring about what he says he's going to bring about. So here, bring this together. Hebrews 6, God cannot lie. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Listen to the promise in Romans chapter 8. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he works all things together for the good. Hear that? Hebrews chapter 6. God cannot lie. When he promises something, he keeps it. Romans chapter 8, 28. He, the God who cannot lie, who makes you a promise that he can never break, promises you that he will do good to you. Hear that? That's why God's, why God's being in heaven, when Jesus says, pray this way, pray like this, our Father who are in heaven, when I recognize that my Father, my God is in heaven, that he is over, transcendent over all things, holy, righteous, just, all-knowing, all-powerful, unable to lie, sovereignly in charge of everything. That's why when I pray that, it humbles me. And at the same time, it gives me great confidence. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you are our Father who is in heaven that you are transcendent, that you are holy, 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 or that you are sovereign, that you are all-powerful, that you are all-knowing, or that you do not lie. It is impossible for you to. You keep your promises always. And, Lord, that you promise us that as our sovereign good, our God, as our sovereign God, you are working toward our good and your glory, and you cannot fail. Lord, let us understand that praying to a God like you is both humbling because we deserve nothing from your hand and we can demand nothing from it, but we need you desperately. And at the same time, it engenders great confidence because you make great promises and you are powerful and able to keep them because you want to do good to your children. In Jesus' name, amen.